0: If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in the future. How might we design new school models to better serve all young people? What are the skills and jobs of tomorrow? I recently participated in IFTF's Foresight Essentials, a great program from Institute for the Future. In this course, I got the opportunity to co-design with futures thinkers from around the world and acquired a set of tools for radical imagining, facilitating, and developing a foresight practice you can do it too. This course is great for those looking to build something new or trying to innovate within their current role. Go to iftf.org slash Foresight Essentials to learn more or just click the link in the show notes.
1: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Shawnee Carruthers. Last year, I was fortunate enough to attend both the Education Leaders of Color and Surge Institute conferences. It was beautiful to see leaders of color come together to share about their journeys as passionate educators and leaders. The same was true for the Surge Institute. Based on a robust cohort model, education leaders from regions from across the United States came together to dream and engage in conversations about leadership, education and social justice. Today, I'm joined by Sharonda Bassier, CEO of Education Leaders of Color, EDLOC, and Carmita Saman, founder of the SEARCH Institute. EdLock supports talented leaders of color in education and related fields to thrive as disruptive and innovative agents of change. The SEARCH Institute is the preeminent pipeline addressing the dearth of leadership of color at decision-making tables. SEARCH educates, Empowers and it energizes leaders of color who will create transformative change in the communities they serve. Sharonda, what is EdLock?
2: Um, EdLock is a membership organization that provides professional development, networking, and funding support to leaders of color who are working at the intersection of education and broader racial, social, and economic justice issues. Our goal is to ensure that young people of color have access to the resources and supports they need to thrive, capitalize on opportunity, and build generational wealth. So everything that we do is really ensuring that the leaders who are at the forefront, who we think are leading organizations that should be examples to other people in their sectors, get what they need to be the best leaders and do their best work. Carmina, what is the
1: Surge Institute?
3: Well, Shawnee, I could say you know what Surge Institute is because you are a Surge alum. But for your listeners, first of all, thank you so much for having us. Um, And thank you for having me with Sharonda, one of my peer sheroes in this work. Um, Surge is a leadership accelerator that unapologetically invests in Black, brown, golden um, education leaders Um, I often say we don't develop leaders. We really acknowledge the brilliance and genius that already exists within our communities and create spaces to amplify and elevate that talent, uh, connect them with other leaders across the ecosystem, and educate, empower, and energize those leaders to create transformative change in the communities they serve. We do that through deep regional cohort-based programming, as well as national programming Um, It's grown from uh, our founding in Chicago in 2015 with 12 fellows to now having uh, over 250 alums across seven markets with five different programs.
1: And this is for either one of you, but what does it mean to amplify leaders of color?
2: Carmita? I feel like you have been really instrumental in helping me think about what that means. Um, I think one of my earliest conversations with you, you talked about this idea of sponsorship versus mentorship. And so I think what we are trying to do at EdLock, as we think about what it means to leverage our access, our resources, our platform, our credibility um, in support of other leaders of color is sponsor our members, right? Um, it's to figure out how to be champions for them in their work. It's to figure out how to leverage our access to ensure that they are positioned as experts in their fields. Um, it's to leverage our relationships with philanthropic organizations and institutions um, so that we can say like, hey, actually, we think that this thing that you think is a risky investment is a pretty sure bet. Why don't we try it, Right. Um, And so that is how we think about amplifying leaders of color as much in the way that I have heard Carmita over the years talk about sponsorship. It is, I am deeply invested in you, deeply invested in your vision, deeply invested in your leadership, and I am going to do everything I can to ensure that you get the access, the resources, the support you need to thrive as a leader so that the young people and families you are supporting are able to thrive, to freedom dream, right? to borrow another thing from, from the surge community um, and to truly live lives of their own design. So, yeah, that's how we think about it.
3: Uh, well, I would say a lot of that. So I will. <laughs> I, um, I And I so appreciate you saying that because it's, it's beautiful that we have come to a time, Sharonda, where a lot of these things where I think about 10 years ago, we were having to beat people over the head to even just get them to hear and understand that we existed, right? Like I think about amplification in the early days of Surge really just meant disproving this notion that we didn't exist because, um, you know, I think about 2012, 2013, and there was this ongoing conversation about, oh, oh, if we could just find leaders of color for these positions or X, Y, Z, unfortunately, we're still hearing that in pockets. um, But amplification initially was just like, hey, we're here. I don't know where you're looking, um, but we exist. And we are brilliant, like we have and and are uniquely and supremely qualified to lead work on behalf of in line with hand in hand with communities and families um, with whom we have shared experience. So that was the sort of beginning of our amplification journey. I think Sharonda, you've said so well, which I won't repeat, which I talk a lot about mentorship versus sponsorship. The piece that I will add um, is a part of the amplification, a necessary precursor that we have found in our work at Surge is there's a lot of that heart and spirit work that has to be done with the individuals for them to see themselves in the way that we see them right so i think shani you could probably attest and as you said earlier um some of the hesitancy and you know skepticism or resistance that often exists when we invite people to share their wildest dreams for transformation for young people, for communities, are often inhibited by what they've been taught they should not dream for. like um, And we all know the ways in which we've been taught to, um, I would say, leave pieces of our story behind in order to be seen as... Uh, credible, as professional, as respectable, whatever you want to fill in. And part of our amplification work, and I would just add, there is, we talk about our work as head, heart, and spirit. And that heart and spirit work is often tapping into the richness and genius that exists within those in our community and helping them to see it as fact (laughs) and not as something that they have to... um, you know, grind themselves to. It's like, no, just because you exist, you are brilliant. And we're going to give you opportunities to elevate that. We're going to connect you with others who you can really organically start to freedom dream, ideate, like think of new solutions and innovations for problems that we know have persisted for so long and all those things. And as Sharonda said, like we're going to do everything that we can and use every resource amount of privilege, um, you know, that we have in our power to help realize those dreams. Yeah, I love this
2: idea of head, heart and spirit work and getting leaders to see themselves the way that the rest of us see them. You know, we work with leaders who are at a different point in their leadership journey than the ones who are often, you know, participating in surge. Um, And that that sort of level of insecurity doesn't go away, right? And I'm always fascinated by that. And so so many of our members are in these sort of number two or three roles in organizations where truthfully, they're doing the heavy lifting, right? And then they get this opportunity to sort of step out and to step into the limelight. And there's this reluctance to do so. Some of it I think is insecurity, but some of it I also think is, how do I take on this number one seat in a way that is consistent with my values, in a way that is consistent with my deep respect for the communities I wanna serve and that I wanna work alongside, and in a way that doesn't have me thinking that I need to lead in the way that the leader in the Harvard Business case study I read leads, right? Um, and so part of, I think, the work that we also do at when thinking when we're thinking about amplification is thinking about amplifying leaders who don't necessarily fit what has been a historically pretty narrow archetype for what leadership can and should look like, even in the social services sector, right? Um, And so we're like, hey, you can wear your hoop earrings, right? And still be, you know, an authentic leader um, and an impactful and effective leader. Or like you can lead from a place that honors the people in communities that you work with and that sees their genius and sees their assets. You don't have to enter into the conversation or into the space the way that your predecessors did. And we can show you leaders who have done that in ways that feel good, right, and aligned with who you are and who you want to be. And so it's also about elevating people who are leading and ways that feel different, but that are still getting results.
3: I just want to plug because you mentioned it. Part of elevation means we got to get more of our people's stories told, um, I, we, we are fortunate, knock on all the things. There's a, a Harvard case about surge and my entrepreneurial journey. And I can't tell you every, it's usually taught two or three times a year. And every time I have leaders, black, brown, API folks who are like, this was the one case <laughs> that I've read Exactly. Where I actually saw myself, where you talked about, you know, your childhood, you talked about faith as a really integral part of your journey. You talk, you know, all of these things. Um, so I also see a necessary, like, for me, as I think of amplification, it's also getting more of our stories told, um, so that we start to normalize what you and I like, what we all see all the time. It still feels so novel um, to so many folks, and and I think the more we normalize that, um, you know, I I I know my board members hate when I say this, but I'm like it would be brilliant um, if we would get to a time where some of the work that we at Surge do doesn't even need to exist anymore. Um, And, you know, people think it's odd to hear a founder saying that, but like, all of us should be trying to work ourselves out of jobs, right? Because we, are, we were um, really born to solve a problem. And I dream of a day when we no longer have to create spaces for the psychological safety and amplification and elevation of our people because that is just normalized.
1: Sometimes people see amplification as disruptive or innovative, what, it, what does that mean to you, those words, to be disruptive, to be innovative?
3: Um, I'm not afraid of disruption. And I frankly think that um, when you are dealing with status quo systems that have marginalized and underserved communities for so long. um, They have to be disrupted. And you've heard me say this a ton, Shawnee. I say it to every surge group that I ever talk to is like, if we are doing our jobs well, then my aim is to help people navigate systems without being corrupted by them in order to disrupt them potentially dismantle them and transform them like that's the aim so i don't see like to me you know when i think about my greatest heroes, right? The people whose work I admire and whose steps, you know, whose footsteps I want to walk in. They were people who challenged the norm. They, they actually were, you know, innovators, uh, ideators. And that's what I hope that we are seeding and supporting in the work that we do.
2: You know, I, I've i been really in this place of deep reflection, um, and when I first left the classroom in 2010, I um, started doing parent advocacy and organizing work, um, and mostly in support of charter schools at the time, um, because they were supposed to be the great disruptors, right, and the great innovators. And as I sort of take a step back, think about who I really want to be when I grow up, right, as I approach a new decade of life, I'm like, well what did we disrupt, right? And what is sort of, what truly was innovative that has come out of the sort of the work that I've done over the last decade. And I think where I have really struggled is, um, I don't know if people have a real appetite for what disruption feels like in the moment. Um, And I think we can talk about our work at EdLock as a a good example here, right? I think to Carmita's point, when we started meeting 10 years ago and then when we launched officially seven years ago, which feels wild to say, um, we were one of the first places um, in education where we talked explicitly about poverty, right? And where we talked about the need to work and to go beyond education. And where we said one of our goals was to build and sustain a multiracial coalition, right? And I think a lot of our leaders had a ton of practice at being in like Black-Brown coalitions, right? So you Black, you Latino, bet we know how to work together. But when we expanded and evolved our membership to include Asian and Pacific Islander members, that felt really disruptive to what we had been building. And it felt really disruptive to people's sense of like place and self within the network, right? To the extent that Asian-Americans in particular have been able to be used as a wedge, right, um, in conversations around progress, around race, around affirmative action, it's really important to us that they be part of our coalition, right? Like that feels very disruptive. And some folks are not really on board with that. And that has been very, very hard to like come to terms with. The other thing I'll say on the sort of charter front is as I look at that sector and I look at the profile of leader and I look at the school models that are able to scale, et cetera, I'm not seeing a ton of disruption or innovation there. I'm seeing a sort of scale the same kinds of schools. I'm seeing us invest in the same kinds of leaders. I'm seeing us shy away from the conversations that I think are really important right now about whose stories and whose histories get told, about whose identities are affirmed in our schools. Um, And I think that there was the language around disruption and innovation in so many ways in education, I feel like has been co-opted to the extent that I'm not sure that it means much to most people. Um, and I'm really truthfully disheartened by that. And trying to think about how we talk about our work in a way that says you're going to hear this language elsewhere, but we means we mean it for real. <laughs> uh, and that is that is sort of where I am at this sort of this very real personal and professional inflection point for myself.
1: As you think about the school systems and bringing in the work that you all do from a, a regional and national standpoint, but then bringing it into the schools, how do you then? where where should school start in order to start to create the change that we need to see
3: um institutions are doing what they are designed to do so with that with that understanding um and I'm I'm going to speak with my surge hat on Um, There's a reason why when we started Surge, like we, we didn't partner with districts, like we didn't partner with longstanding institutions. And we, to this day, you know, we say like our investment um, is in our people. And that is our lever for system level change. Now, for some people, they want to go directly to the system. And I, you know, and Sharonda is also a bit like having worked within those systems, I know that um, there is need to to disrupt a lot of things. But I really believe the way to do that, the vehicle to do that is through um, identifying emboldening, (laughs) empowering, um, and amplifying, elevating folks of color within those systems. Um, and and in our work, we we very intentionally, as we're curating cohorts, and you experience this in KC. Um, yes, we want people who were who are within you know traditional systems of education, but we also are trying to bring those people alongside folks who are in youth development, who are in education philanthropy. Like we very intentionally talk about the education e- ecosystem as a very broad umbrella, and recognizing that we need people who have shared experience with our students and families who have a liberatory sort of approach to innovation in all of those seats. Um, so that doesn't mean that I don't see the potential for real um, now now, Sharonda's got me not one to say innovation, but real like disruption and dismantling. We, we talk about it as dis- disrupting, dismantling, transforming. But like Um, I do believe that that can happen, but I believe that it requires a different type of leadership from those who choose to infiltrate those spaces. Um, And, you know, we talk about this three-prong, like who are the, um, I could turn it over to you because you've learned this, but like the actors that are required, right? You need external agitators. Look at you with your surge stuff. Um, But we need, you know, External agitators, because systems don't change without external agitation. There's got to be something that is actually, and so we need people who are outside those systems saying, hey, here's the real impact of these things that you see on paper or you pontificate about or whatever. And those folks have to be, and they generally are doing the catalytic work to actually have people understand what these systems are doing. But I have not seen any successful social justice movement where you didn't also have innovators and infiltrators within those systems who were willing to take on the work Internally, to try to sort of right those ships, right, Um, and it it works sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't, right? (laughs) Which is why some people they're like, "Look, I, you know, I am not going to let myself. I'm not. There's only so much of self I am going to sacrifice to be in these positions of trying to, you know, innovate within systems. If you are truly disrupting, um, then you might not last long, and it's your job to ensure that." Even if you um, have to relinquish that seat for whatever reason, that you have established um, you know, people who are coming behind you to continue that legacy work. And then finally, outside of all of that, you need the orchestrators. So, so I, I really think um, that ultimately the system's change is dependent upon us. And our role is to actually arm those people who are doing that work. I think you all have taken things a step further in your engagement and a lot of policy work. Um, And we've intentionally not done that. And, And part of that is because... We are, you know, we support the policy work of our alums and our members, and we don't ever want to be in the position where we are working at cross purposes with, you know, people that we are we are supporting in our um, in our membership.
1: I also want to know, as you're doing all this work and um, all of the things that Carmita just mentioned, how can systems go about recruiting and retaining more? Um, leaders and teachers, uh, staff of of color. Yeah,
2: it's so funny because one of the one of the big policy issues we're pushing right now is student debt relief. Um, and one of the biggest hurdles we hear um, from our folks who are working to diversify the teaching force is young people are graduating college with insurmountable student debt, and as they are thinking about what career opportunities are most attractive to them going into education is not high on the list because the salaries are not particularly competitive, right? And the student loan forgiveness, it's like, wait, I've got to give 10 years of my life to this, maybe get part of my student, you know, so people are making real calculations. And as people who understand, because many of us were first generation college graduates ourselves, right, what it's like to like graduate, maybe not have the social network to land a strong first job, although many of our, you know, member organizations are working on that, right? Um, And then you're like, okay, I could... Have a master's degree, graduate and take a job that pays me
3: thirty nine thousand dollars a year, right? thirty nine thousand dollars a year right now in this day and age. you can't that's not a, that's not a living wage. It's not
2: a living wage, but this is what we are asking people who want to work and who want to work with our young people. This, these are the salaries we are asking them to take. Right. Um, And so when you when you talk about systems, I mean, I would hope that we would see leaders of systems saying, like, hey, I can't recruit the early childhood educators I need. I can't recruit the teachers I need unless we figure out what we're going to do with this student loan burden. And that is disproportionately borne by first generation college graduates, many of whom are young people of color. Right. So that is actually a racial justice issue right there. The second thing is um, we have not in many instances um, helped young people see pathways beyond the classroom. So even if teaching is not for you, I have a brother who is like, super incredibly talented, very good with young people. But his idea of like being in a classroom all day is like, that's not his dream. That's not his jam, right? And like, there's so many other things that you could do in education that allow you to influence and impact the lives of young people that are not in the classroom. But he, absent that exposure from a sister who knows the education sector, he didn't have an idea about how else he could plug in. And I think some of that is on us, right? It's like, how are we helping young people see all that is possible all of the roles that exist in education beyond just being in the classroom. And then I would say, lastly, we have to help people see um, pathways to promotion. I think about my friends who entered the private sector um, after undergrad and they had a very clear sense of, you know, where they were going in their career. They were like, I'm going to do this for three to five years, this for three to five years, maybe take this little detour because I want to get these skills and then come back and do that. We have not figured out how to do that for young people who are interested in education, right? Um, And I know a lot of people sort of thumb their nose at the idea that you should only spend three to five years in the classroom, right? I think that there are ways that other folks have figured out how to grow as leaders, even as they've stayed in the classroom, right? So like teacher leadership at the campus or district level is very real, very necessary. And there are opportunities for people who desire to stay in the classroom for the entirety of their careers to figure out how to be leaders beyond that. We should, tell people what that could look like as one potential pathway, right? Um, And so I think as young people are, um, you know, we're not our parents. We're not staying at the same companies for 25, 30 years. We're not going to get no pension, no way, right? So we might as well work where we want to work, and we might as well do work that we find fulfilling. And it's on us to figure out how to help young people create those career maps for themselves.
3: But this is why I feel like I feel that so many of us have the opportunity to model a different way to lead. Like even those of us who are are outside of these systems, um, it just, it's, I, I feel um and I burden is not the right word but I feel a sense of responsibility in leading an organization that is for and by folks of color to model a different way of being in that right and then um and I don't always get it right let me be very clear <laughs> I like have made lots of mistakes along the way um but just some basic things around like paying people livable wages I have said from the beginning, um, my board laughs at me, but like, I don't want to police people's bodies or their time. Like excellence is a value at our organization. Perfectionism is not right. And excellence is actually different from perfection. And I believe that our people were born of excellence. It is innate. And I want to give people the resources that they need to operate in that excellence. Um, I want to have shared goals around what that looks like, but then I also want to get out of their way and let that thrive and shine and all of that sort of stuff. Like we just had, we just hired um, this brilliant, this brilliant artist um, as a full-time graphic designer in our organization. And this brother is a creative, right? So he's also got like a fashion line, and you know, is doing some producing and other things on the side. And I'm so proud of the fact that we've created an organization where he doesn't have to hide that, right? Like he doesn't have to be like, oh, okay, no, this is what I do. And I'm only this. And it's like, look, if you killing it in your job, I don't care what else. like, if anything, I want to be a vehicle for that genius to get, you know, out to the world in whatever way. So, and this comes back to your, one of your first statements, Sharonda, like, getting our people to understand that we don't have to lead in the same way that others have led. Like my thing is, if surge is going to go out of business and and not get any funding or whatever, we're going to do it doing it the right way. Like we're, we are we are going to do it knowing that we can feel really proud of the way that we have centered our people, the way that we have created space for them to lean into and often return back to themselves. Um, and that is going to rub some people the wrong way. It's going to you know all of that. Um, but I, I do I do feel this sense of responsibility of modeling a different way of being and leading, and encouraging and supporting other leaders in that. Like we now, Sharonda, I would say we just did our latest alumni survey, and about thirty percent of our people. Um, our alums who responded to this survey are now in C-level roles or have founded their own organizations, and so we we hear very similar things. And one of my proudest, like I, I feel, I'm proud all the time. I'm like a little proud, Auntie. I own the Auntie title now at 46. I'm just gonna lean into it. Um, And but it's when I hear people talking about their freedom dreams, whether they are within institutions, if they are entrepreneurs or um, entrepreneurs. But as I hear them challenging the um, often held like shoulds of what it looks like to run an organization, it's like no, like you don't actually have to have the same sort of. um distance learning policy that everybody else has. You don't have to have the same, you know, professional dress policy that other people have.
2: I, I want to go back to this idea of your your creative person having like these side ventures. I won't call them side hustles, right? But like these other ventures, these other interests. And one thing that I've been talking a lot about with my friends is like, I need a hobby, right? Like I have a bunch of stuff that I do, but I don't have any place where I go just to let the creative part of my brain be creative, right? But part of my work outside of education and having been fortunate enough to have full-time jobs that have allowed for me to still be a whole person outside of them has really, one, made my work in education sustainable, but two, has also been really instructive to how I approach my work, right? So part of what my work in the movement space has taught me is to you know, go back to your three-pronged approach, right? It's like, we need inside the system players, right? So when your activist friend runs for office, they are not a sellout dude. They are the person who actually has the ability to change the rule that you're complaining about. They're actually going to take the meeting with you. Like, this is what we want, right? And so when we, at Edlock, when we have looked at leaders of color who have taken roles at organizations where we're like, I don't know about that organization's commitment to equity, right? You're like, dude, you need somebody in that organization who is committed to equity, and we've got to figure out how to support them. We've got to figure out how to provide the political cover when they decide to make the tough choices, when they stand up and make the hard public statement, and... When they get pushed out, we've got to figure out how to help them land somewhere, right?
1: no, that's okay. we're We're definitely gonna have to do like a part two because we're between wellness and social capital and networkings and how you all's convenience are different and filled with so much joy and all of the things that we we have so many other spaces to um, explore. But before we leave this one, I, I do want to ask one last thought um, and Kermita, we read this in a SIRS, a letter from Birmingham jail. And one of the questions that I want to ask to both of you is, what have you been willing to sacrifice to disturb the peace for the revolution you seek?
3: I I would say... um... A number of things, but let me start by saying I asked that question and I often get try to get people to understand that that answer is going to change over time. So what I was willing to sacrifice, you know, and, and my story and the way I came about this work is is um, uh, Sharonda and I have different origin stories in this way, similar Personal origin stories, but uh, in terms of in the work, I started, you know, I I was a chemical engineer working out that nowhere near education um, except what I was doing on my volunteer time. And so the first thing that I was willing to sacrifice was a much larger paycheck um, that I left behind. Um, very intentionally, like when I left corporate, I was doing global, global, uh, product management and blah, 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 back in like 2004, 2005, flying all over the world. Like it was a very, you know, making a very nice living. Um, and I knew that I was at that point, I was 27, Um, The golden handcuffs were going to get really tight, really quick. And I said to myself at that point, if I don't leave right now, um, I probably won't. And so there was the financial sacrifice, but that wasn't the only time like I've, you know, financial sacrifice. I often talk about um, founding surge, like I, I went completely broke, like <laughs> emptied all my bank accounts, like took early withdrawals on IRAs, all that sort of stuff. So there's financial sacrifice, but there's also, um, If I'm going to be real, like there was some ego and some other things that I had to sort of let die from other spaces in order to lean into, um, I think, being at the place and becoming the leader that I am now. Um, I have been an achiever my entire life. I have been um, somebody who had a scorecard that was set by somebody else for what it looked like for me to be successful and all those other sorts of things. I had to let let that go. I had to um, confront people who loved me, who had no idea why I was doing what I was doing, and called me crazy and all that other kind of stuff. Um, I'd be willing to sacrifice some of that. Um, that meant sacrificing some relationships along the way, um, and it meant just sacrificing some comfort and peace of mind. Um, that that. You know, I, I wrestle with to this day. Like there there are still times where I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Like what you know, um. And, but I think that it's an important question to come back to, um, because along the way, the one thing that I have never sacrificed is my own sort of moral compass or whatever. Like you know, we talk about our personal values and convictions. I have let that drive me even when it made sense to no one else around me. Um, And if I could say that's one thing, like a recipe for living a life of no regret is one that is aligning your actions with your values and your moral compass. And everything else is kind of expendable. I shouldn't say that too loud. My husband would be like, what about us? What about? (laughs) maybe <laughs> <laughs> you know but yeah
2: um so I'll, I'll say a couple of things right i think you know to to build on karmita's last point right my um sort of the thing that i say to myself is that as long as i can stand in front of myself and my god unashamed then i'm fine um i think in the micro sense i have sacrificed what i thought my um leadership journey would look like right i I'm a deep introvert. If I could do work and not be perceived by other people, that would be my dream. And there is something about stepping into the number one seat over the past two and a half years that has made that impossible. Um, And so I've really had to, um, you know, when we talk about our own comfort, I was able to kind of carve out a life and have a career that felt very separate for a long time. And increasingly, those things feel harder to do. Um, And I have had to I sacrifice sometimes what has felt like part of my privacy, actually. And we can talk about why I think that is more of an expectation of women and Black women in particular, right? This idea that like, if people don't get to know you, then they feel like they don't know your work. And I'm like, baby, I got a 10 year long resume over here, go look at that. And then the last thing I will say sometimes that might not always feel like a sacrifice, but, but feels like a very real sacrifice for me is um, time at home. And one of the reasons why I think we are so intentional about the spaces we design is because we want you to know that if you're coming to spend time with us, we have thought through everything for you because we are asking you to step away from your routines, from your life, from your family, and from your other responsibilities. It also means that the people who are at home making that possible for you are also sacrificing. Right. Um, And so I, um, I'm trying to build a life uh, and, and build a new life for myself right now. And so every time I've had to step away from that to be fully present in my work has really felt like a sacrifice in a way that I don't know that people always see or perceive. Um, particularly as a person who doesn't have kids, like people are like, what do you mean? Right. Um, but I have a whole life, and and being with people in the work means stepping away from that. And sometimes that has felt really hard.
1: Well, I truly appreciate the transparency from both of you all and listening to this conversation. It's truly who you are. Like, you all aren't saying words just to say words, but this is truly the life that you all lead and model for others. So I, I appreciate it. And so as we close out, I just, it just, I'm just reminiscent of the time that Sharonda, when we were at the AdLock conference and you said, we're not going to have the fake conversations. We're going to have the question, the conversations that happen like after the sessions, like when people are just sitting around and eating, like those are the real conversations. That's the, that's the conversation we had today. And so I appreciate you both um, being so authentic. Um, Carmita, thank you for reminding us of all of the great work that both you and Sharon are doing, and continue to remind us as you so often tell me to, don't look for the answers, but live into the questions. Um, and then the last thing that I'll say is, Carmi the thing you always say is, um, don't forget who you are, whose you are, and who you serve. And you both are doing that every single day. So I just want to thank you all for your time.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today.